This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon and welcome to the Country Hour. Jane McNaughton here with you for this week. Coming up this Monday afternoon, cow's milk used to be considered a main staple in most Australian households, but new data has shown that we are drinking less dairy than we did a decade ago. We'll take a look abroad to see what's happening on farms in the United States, where every five or so years, politicians pass a massive piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. And if you're a lamb producer, I'd love to hear from you today. After a summer of highs, the price of lamb is beginning to drop at a fast pace. What has this meant for you? Did you get in while the prices were good? Uh, or are you now weighing up when to sell? 0467 842 722. But first, as always, today we'll head to Rural News with Emma Field. Good afternoon. G'day, Jane. Let's start Rural News with the severe flooding in Queensland. Residents in the Gulf of Carpentaria are counting their stock losses after severe flooding over the weekend. As Victoria Pengilly reports, authorities say it could be some time before they can return. Station owners in Burketown in northwest Queensland say they've lost everything from cattle and stock to freezer rooms full of food. About 40 homes have been inundated with flood water in the town and most of its 150 residents have been evacuated. The Albert River has exceeded its 2011 record flood level of 6.78 metres. Authorities say that's now peaked, but flood water will remain high for several weeks. Dozens of other communities remain cut, but it could be some time before machinery is flowing in to help with the clean-up. And still on flooding, this time in New South Wales. The State Emergency Service is warning the New South Wales town of Cootamundra may get cut in two today due to rising floodwaters. Almost 100 millimetres of rain fell in the area overnight, causing Marama Creek to rise rapidly. It's the second time in five months the creek's flooded. The SES has issued an evacuation order for residents living along the creek. SES Regional Commander Barry Griffiths says a number of flood rescues have already been undertaken this morning. Plan your travel. It's likely that we'll probably see Mudama Creek start to cut sections of Sutton Street and, and Cootamundra in two and, and possibly the, the rail line as well if it gets high enough. And still on the flooding, this time in the Northern Territory, when the Victoria River started rising rapidly through the, the communities of Dagaragu and Pigeonhole last week, a helimaster crew jumped into action. Normally at this time of year, the aerial musterers based at Victoria River Downs are waiting for the dry season to start mustering. But when the Victoria River started to flood after up to 250 millimetres of rain in 12 hours, the pilots at Helimaster kicked into gear. As one of the pilots, AJ, explains. Pigeonhole, which the boys pulled out about 60 people from them in the helicopters and they pulled about 180 out of Dagaragu onto dry land on the day of the floods. So once we sort of finished dealing with the people, then it was onto the cattle. So a lot of the boys were out and... Um, in the helicopters there just making sure because there was water coming up so fast that they were getting pinned and getting stuck on little islands and up against fences and stuff so there was a lot of that going on making sure we tried to save as many as we could and then now it's just into the rebuild so a lot of flying and stuff still happening down around Kaukaringi. Roads have been washed out I think one of the bridges there going into Dagaragu is buggered so it could be a while before that gets up and running again um, and now it's turned into um, 
flying tradies and essential workers in there to try and rebuild these communities, get the sewer and the water and the electricity back on. Crossbred wool values have remained solid, helped by flooding in New Zealand. The vast majority of wool produced in New Zealand is broad crossbred, and unlike Australia, about 80% of the New Zealand clip is scoured before shipping. Jenny Turner from wool broker Fox and Lily says the natural disasters has caused problems moving crossbred wool out of New Zealand after flooding at Napier. Yeah, unfortunately for our friends across the ditch, the Australian broad crossbred section is, is benefiting from their situation. Yeah, they're having logistics troubles. Um, they're having their moment in the rain, not in the sun. Um, there's problems moving crossbred wool out of New Zealand, um, damaged by flood water. Um, at a major scouring plant at Napier has, has wrecked the greasy wool sitting waiting for scouring and also for the scoured wool that's awaiting export. So uh, on top of that, you know, New Zealand now have their own headaches with getting wool off farm and, and into wool stores. And finally, there's one lucky dog in WA which survived on an iron ore processing site with potentially hundreds of thousands of tonne of ore being dumped into its hideout. After running away during a recent thunderstorm, a rescue dog called Shani has been found alive and well inside a Rio Tinto iron ore dumper at the Dampier port. Travis Burrows was part of Rio's emergency response team and he says it's a miracle Shani survived. It is extremely, extremely lucky. Like That was a miracle, to be honest, that dog was still alive. The dog had supposedly gone in there and slipped or something and fell in and there's been trains going through for the past couple of days, which has just been tipping ore, which is out of control, which is so loud. Yeah, so much ore coming out. I do not know how that dog survived. Maybe dogs have nine lives as well, Jane. But that's it for Rural News this Monday. Indeed, Emma. Thank you for that, Emma Field, with Rural News. And Shani, the dog, quite an extraordinary uh, attempt at staying alive, really. If you've got any amazing rescue or other dog stories you'd like to share along those lines, please send us a text on 0467 822 The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. After a summer of highs, the price of lamb is beginning to drop at a fast pace. At the most recent lamb sale in Griffith in New South Wales on Friday, lambs were losing an average of $10 a head and had to be over 28 kilos to hit $200. We have also got a text in from Scott from Hamilton asking for a New South Wales lamb market report today in lieu of not having as many markets due to the Victorian public holidays. Scott, we will endeavour to get that to you. But in the meantime, butcher at Midwest Meats in Colac, Justin Cashman, says it's a tibi- it says it's typical for lamb prices to reduce in coming into autumn. But this year, the market is particularly uncertain for sellers. Uh, well, they're, they're coming back. Um, it's just one of those things that happens this time of year when it's particularly when it gets dry like this. Numbers are, numbers are there and uh, they've got to go. So before we touch on the butcher side of things, you're also a sheep producer. So what, what are you doing at the moment with your animals? Just to create certainty in my job, I'm, I'm, I'm buying every one of them off myself because I'm, I'm a little hesitant to put them into the yards because it's a, it's, it's a big unknown. So I'm, I'm happy to keep putting them in through there at the moment, but obviously we're trying to keep the price up there, but I don't think that's going to be the case for the next few weeks. So you're actually buying your own livestock? We are. Yep. It's an insurance policy, I suppose you could say. I have spoken to some meat industry analysts who have said that there is just a huge volume going through the abattoirs at the moment. Is that something you would agree with? 
Uh, it is. It's well. I think we've had such a tremendous season. Like uh, the numbers we held on, we were still fattening lambs up until a month ago. We we're still getting rain through December and even into January. So the conditions are ideal, but it's it's certainly dried out quickly. And um, yeah, everyone. I mean, we all don't want to end up feeding animals forever. And and there's just been a big number of lambs have been held back, but they've all quickly coming onto the market now, um, which obviously causes this situation. If you don't mind me asking, what price are you selling your lambs to yourself for? Uh, we're putting them into our shop at 220 bucks plus GST at the moment. And we're, we're, we're having to do that purely so we can sort of make a, a profit on them. But we could probably pull that back a little bit in the next couple of weeks. But lambs, that's after we've had them killed and processed and, and, and brought back to us. Uh, there's probably sort of 40 bucks in that alone. So our bottom line back to ourselves would be around that 180 to 190, um, a lot of those, you can even take more expenses off like feeding that off that as well. But generally lambs going to shops at the moment be around 200 bucks to 220, I reckon. Per head for how many kilos? Uh, 24 to 26, we sort of put them in there. After a strong summer on the mutton market, that also seems to have tanked. Anything to do with uh, trim, um, whether it be beef or lamb and, or mutton trim, like that seems to have come back a little bit. Uh, trim, when I might say trim, I generally mean mince prices for the general person. And have you started lowering the prices in the butcher shop to reflect the lowering prices in the sale yards yet? Absolutely. We sort of got to do that to keep it moving ourselves. Otherwise, the problem becomes bigger. Uh, you sort of don't have a say in that. You say it's sort of supply and demand that dictates what you have to do. Otherwise, we end up getting a build-up too. Did you get a reduction in people buying lamb when it was at those really high prices? It's funny. Uh, no. No, we didn't. We, we sort of found... I think it's going to be different going forward with interest rates and everything else that's happening. But, I mean, through COVID, simple, all that, that period of time and even into the last sort of 12 months, people got used to cooking at home and... and enjoyed it therefore not really what we sort of there's been a lot of demand for product domestically for the last three years which has been great and hopefully it continues and across the board more generally uh, in the butcher shop have you noticed any price or consumer trends uh definitely going towards cheaper cuts yeah it's one of those things where when things get tough we still sell the same volume in terms of tonnage uh they generally just go for the cheaper cuts and uh, we're certainly noticing that now consumers that were a little bit flush six to 12 months ago before all this interest rate talk and, and, and uncertainty were, it didn't matter pretty much, but at the moment you can, you can see it. And we've, we've come through Christmas, you've got the school fees, you've got the, the holidays all got to be paid for. It generally happens this time of year regardless, but I think this year's a little different. So yeah, we're certainly seeing trends in people buying cheaper and alternative meats here. Butcher at Midwest Meats and Sheep Farmer from Colac, Justin Cashman speaking there. This downturn in price of lamb has resulted in 51% of producers selling less lambs than they expected to six months ago, according to the latest data from MLA's Sheep Producer Intentions Pulse survey. Market information analyst Jenny Lim says floods and weather hampered lamb selling in the final months of last year, but producers are planning to make up for this shortfall in the first half of 2023. She says when taking into account the lamb flock sizes, the, the analyst indicate that the 2022 lamb sales were closer to 8.75 million than the planned 11.84 million. We've seen actually um, a 50% decrease in lamb sold and, and this is from the expected sales from the October wave um, that we reported on last year and a lot of this nationally is due to weather impacts on lamb performance. 
And what about in Victoria specifically? There's a really strong correlation between fewer lambs sold and um, weather impact. Other things uh, could be uh, long harvest periods and and some processor availability, but only 6% was attributed to that. When taking into account the size of lamb flocks, what are we looking at here as far as what actually has been sold over the past few months? So we had a um, an estimated flock size come out of the October wave and this 56% less sold in Victoria actually equates to 1 million lambs less sold than expected from the October wave and that is to June 2022 to December 2031st. Um, uh, and do the national numbers reflect that? Yeah, they do. We've seen a lot less um, lambs come through than we expected. And um, this is actually followed through to the following year. So we actually are expecting a um, 55% increase in the first half of 2023 to be sold um, as those lambs do come to wait and have to be sold. And when we speak about weather, there's obviously an impact on the actual uh, production of lambs and how they're growing. But farmers were also facing things like flooding and having to protect their properties, potentially harvest delays. Are all these things also distractions from the lamb sales? Yeah, so one of the questions we asked in this um, wave is why they um, had a decline in lamb sales. Majority of it, 43% of it, was attributed to weather and the lamb performance of the year. Um, another 25% was attributed to um, prices and, and not being strong enough or, or as strong as they expected. And then another 13% was attributed to less lambs than expected um, when we surveyed them in October. Other things such as harvest operations, um, lambs not making weight, which could be attributed to weather as well and retaining lambs for the 2023 period because they expect it to be a stronger outlook um, were reasons that were given as to less lamb sales uh, at the end of last year. So you did, you did mention 2023 there. What are the estimates for the next few months of selling? In Victoria specifically, 61% expect to sell more in um, between January and June um, than what we saw, what we what they expected in October um, in Victoria, and that equates to 4.2 million lambs, which is up on the October estimate in Victoria, which was originally 2.4 million lambs. So we're seeing a huge increase, nearly 2 million lambs um, expected in the first half of this year. And what about the rest of the country? So nationally, um, October estimates are up. 3.27 million um, lambs, and that's expected from the October um, survey. So what we're seeing is a total of 13.44 million lambs in the first half of 2023 nationally. And what do you predict price-wise? We've just been hearing about a fall in prices on the market at the moment. So are farmers now rushing to sell their lambs at this price, or should they hold out? I think um, supplies definitely plays a key um, uh, is a key component of pricing pressures. We saw in um, the survey that nine percent actually sold more or or 13% sold more and 9% of that was attributed to downsizing due to forecast prices. So we are seeing some um, people or some producers um, selling off because of what they expect prices to do. In terms of what will actually happen and in producer intentions will really um, be determined by the conditions and then how producers are feeling about the market. 55% of survey producers were actually expecting to sell more lambs in the first half of this year. What can you tell us about that? I think um, it's clear that across um, the whole uh, nation, WA, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, New South Wales, we saw a huge 
um, you know, increase in expected sales in the first half of the year. And that's also across all farm sizes. So I think it's a clear indication that, you know, even though we've had, you know, big lamb yardings at the end of last year, we can expect a lot more lamb yardings in the next um, six months for sure. Meet and Livestock Australia's market information analyst, Jenny Lim. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Jane McNaughton here with you today on the Country Hour where it's 21 past 12. If you started your morning with a tea or coffee, what kind of milk are you drinking with it? Cow's milk used to be considered a main staple in most Australian households, but new data has shown that we are drinking less dairy than we did a decade ago. Sarah Price has the story. It's a busy morning at Cafe 3869 in the town of Yunnar in Gippsland. People are lining up to get their freshly brewed cappuccinos or lattes before heading off to their jobs or school drop-offs. The customers I spoke to all seem to prefer dairy milk with their coffees and don't like the alternatives. I've never tasted soy or almonds. I just stick to plain old cow milk. <laughs> no, no, I've tried it. My, uh, my wife drinks it... Um, the nut milk, whatever it is. Not sure what it's called, but she drinks that, I don't. It tastes horrible. However, cafes Australia-wide now offer milk alternatives such as almond or oat milk to cater for a growing demand. Oat milk is a popular choice for many people, including this customer at the Hunting Ground Cafe in Sale, who has been trying the plant-based milk for six months. Cow's milk doesn't agree with me, particularly in hot coffee, and so I started drinking soy but I found that it's I don't like the froth that comes with it in a in a coffee and the oats great and doesn't froth. Jolly Dolly Cafe owner in sale Nicole Smith has been a barista for close to 30 years and she's been surprised at the rising popularity of milk alternatives. We probably go through I'd reckon five or six litres of almond milk a day like we go through a lot of normal milk as well but um yeah, almond milk and soy milk are probably two of the most popular specialty milks. The specialty milks are definitely getting more and more and more popular. Finding a lot more of like young tradies as well into the specialty milk. But I would say a lot of it is they just like the taste of it. Um, the ones that I have spoke to, they just they find the um, the full cream milk just upsets their tummy a little bit. Recent analysis by Ribobank shows Australian consumers are drinking 13% less dairy milk than what they were a decade ago. Senior analyst Michael Harvey says back in 2012, Australians consumed about 107 litres of milk a year, and now that's dropped to 93 litres. And while Australia still consumes more milk per person than most other countries, this rate is dropping. The penetration of plant-based milks is very low, from an overall percentage basis, but it is growing because we know that that plant-based diet, that's a macro trend that we see in consumer markets. So, but it's only one of the factors. I mean, there's just those natural shifts away from you know eating cereal and, and drinking milk with cereal in the mornings, and you know consumers moving into alternative beverages and things like that. Michael Harvey from Rabobank says while a lift in the farm gate prices has benefited farmers, inflation is taking its toll on shoppers' demand. We have seen retail prices for white milk increasing at a fairly significant rate. Clearly, food inflation is a global issue. Dairy inflation is part of the food inflation story that we're seeing locally and globally. We've had record high farm gate pricing here in Australia 
really on the back of a very strong commodity market through 2022. And what we've obviously seen play out from then is the dairy companies needing to pass through some of that higher cost of milk, but also higher cost of processing products to get it to consumer being passed through. And that's why we've had record levels of inflation coming through on the dairy aisle, particularly around cheese and, and white milk. Now, that's challenging for consumers, but that's really just about improving the margins and restoring margins in the value chain for Australia. And moving forward, you know, with those higher more sticky price points for, for consumer products for dairy that will provide a bit more stability in market returns for the industry, which, which will be a good thing. But we know that consumers are obviously paying a bit more for dairy. Sally Jones, co-founder and owner of Gippsland Jersey Milk, says she's been feeling the heat from milk alternative brands and is calling for the dairy industry to push back. What I'm seeing when I'm talking to consumers is there is this intolerance to cow's milk. And I don't know what that is. Obviously, there's a big push big advertising campaigning going on with these alternative milk brands really pushing into our white milk space. And as a dairy company and as a dairy industry, I really feel like we need to fight back, you know, stand up for stand up for the cows, you know. I'm all about, you know, let's let's really toot toot the moon moo juice and get it back into being the number one milk of choice in coffee shops. And do you feel like there there is a, a competitiveness perhaps within your company, for example, and milk alternatives? Do you feel that competitiveness with milk alternative companies? Yeah, we do. It's a little bit disrespectful when you go to a, a cafe um, and they'll say, oh, no, we don't like paying more than, you know, let's say $1.50 a litre for my milk. But then they'll pay $4.00 for a carton of almond milk that contains 3% almond. But I think as a dairy industry, we just need to stand up and defend ourselves against the alternative milk brands and be really proud about what we do as an industry. Sally Jones from Gippsland Dairy, finishing that report by Sarah Price. And sticking with dairy, Dairy Australia have released their yearly outlook for 2023, forecasting an overall optimistic few months ahead. Dairy Australia's industry analyst Sarah Redfern says despite higher retail prices and financial pressures facing consumers, 97% of households still consume dairy products. However, the 2022-23 milk production outlook has become more negative than it was in June. Ongoing worker shortages, competition for land and resources, as well as more immediate factors such as wet spring and significant flooding in many regions, led to Dairy Australia's recent forecast revision going from 0% to a to a contraction of between 4% and 6%. This implies a seasonal total between 8 and 8.2 billion litres, the lowest production since 1993-94, when Australia produced 8.8 billion litres. Eliza Redfern says this contracted market will boost Australia's dairy commodity prices compared with other exporting countries. There's quite a few medium-term constraints. So whether that's, you know, around labour challenges and around worker shortages, uh, competition for land and resources, farm exits and cullings, but there's also the more immediate challenges that we've been seeing this season around the wet weather conditions and then flooding across multiple dairying regions as well. And is it a similar situation for dairy farmers overseas? 
Yes, so the situation is a little bit different overseas at the moment. You know, um, if we're talking about the key exporting regions, so parts of the US, Europe, then also in New Zealand, um, they're also experiencing some labour shortages, but they are seeing, you know, some production growth. And this is compared to lower comparable figures from last season, uh, but they are seeing some growth. And as a result, there has been, you know, increased exportable product um, on the market currently. And coupled with that quieter demand globally, we have seen that global commodity value have fallen. And what does that mean for Australian exports? Essentially, at this point in time, global demand is on the quieter side, particularly when we think about, you know, what's happening with China and with their their COVID policies. And they have reopened, but their importing has been uh, impacted because of that, you know, that that implication on their domestic consumption. Um, So essentially what we're seeing is that Australian prices are still quite firm because we do have limited product availability, despite the fact that global commodities have been falling. So dairy farmers around Australia can be optimistic for the next 12 months? Yes, so I think, you know, considering what's happening with the global situation, there's a lot of volatility out there and things can change pretty quickly. Um, At this point in time, we're seeing that high retail values um, or prices are are injecting significant value back through the dairy supply chain. Um, And at this point in time, export commodities do remain quite firm. Are there any particular insights from this report for Victorian dairy farmers? Yeah, so I think probably the key thing going forward is watching what, you know, what the impact of global markets and the changes within that space, um, what, what impact that has on commodity prices and then sort of how that flows through to farm gate milk prices towards the beginning of the new season coming up. Um, so particularly because we do export a lot of product out of Victoria, that's a really big ticket item for, for farmers to watch going forward. You mentioned earlier the volumes of cheese and butter have been falling as far as how much consumers are buying, but yogurt is increasing. Is that due to health concerns or what's the reason for that? Typically, consumption of yogurt has really been supported by the fact that it's a really healthy and nutritious product. But the other side of that is that it's usually, um, you know, conveniently packed. It's in smaller pack sizes. Uh, people can purchase that. They can consume it at home or it's, it's quite easy to consume on the go. So part of this is also, I guess, a bit of normalisation as where, you know, there's people are working from home. They're going back to the office. So there's as sort of people find that balance, they're, you know, consuming and, and supporting that yogurt purchasing. Dairy Australia's industry analyst, Eliza Redfern. It is half past 12, time now for regional news headlines with Rio Davis. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jane. Making news around regional Victoria, police are investigating after a three-year-old was allegedly forgotten and left in a daycare bus for about five hours in the state's north. The child was collected from her Shepparton home at a quarter past nine on Friday morning and a staff member at Lula's Children and Family Centre allegedly found her in the bus at around quarter to three that afternoon. The girl was taken to hospital by ambulance and treated for heat stress before being discharged on Saturday. Albury-Wodonga Health is working with Safer Care Victoria to enhance patient safety after concerns were raised at an inquest. Oakland's man, William Edmonds, died at Albury Base Hospital in December 2019. An inquest into his death heard concerns about how his doctor, who performed a failed bowel surgery on the man, communicated to his family. The hospital's CEO says Albury Wodonga Health will strive to improve care as it waits for the inquest's findings. A new study has found more areas of regional Victoria urgently need water fluoridation to improve dental health. 
The Trobe University researchers have found almost 150,000 Victorians living in 203 towns don't have fluoridated tap water. The study's authors say this adds another layer of inequity to many towns that are already disadvantaged when it comes to health outcomes. A national charity says cost of living pressures mean demand for free period products is at an all-time high and more donations are needed. Many major retailers and small businesses in regional Victoria have volunteered for Share the Dignities March collection drive where community members can donate items. The period products people donate are distributed to frontline shelters and community services in the local area. And thousands of music lovers have visited the coastal city of Port Ferry for the 46th annual Folk Festival, which finishes today. The festival started on Friday with a welcome to country by Peak Warung elders who honoured the late Archie Roach. The events director says it's been one of their biggest festivals to date. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thank you for that, Rio. Rio Davis here in the studio in Ballarat with your regional news headlines. Uh, 33 past 12 at the moment. Jay McNaughton's my name and you're listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Time to get a weather update with senior forecaster from the Bureau of Meteorology, Mark Analak. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, Jane. How are you going? I'm not too bad. Uh, How's the weather around the state looking today? Yeah, I might just do a quick recap of the last sort of 24 hours. Yeah, go for um, it. We saw a, uh, a bit of a uh, sort of showers developing across the southwest yesterday morning, and those showers moved up into the northeast uh, across central parts of the state yesterday. Uh, rainfall figures are quite variable, but uh, for the most part, uh, for the northeastern corner of the state, we saw falls of the order of 10 to 15 millimetres, 10 to 20 millimetres up in the northeast ranges. But for the most part, um, sort of around the southwest, falls were generally less than a few millimetres. Uh, that brings us to today. Um, most of that cloud has now cleared, and we're looking at generally clear skies across the state, temperatures on the rise. This afternoon, we should see temperatures of the order of low to mid-20s for southern parts of the state and across the northern plains, temperatures more like the mid to high 20s. There's still a few lingering showers about the far eastern tip of East Gippsland. Uh, They may persist into the afternoon, uh, sorry, into the late afternoon, but I don't think they'll last too much longer than that. So for tonight, we should expect mostly clear skies across Victoria. Moving into tomorrow, um, we have generally a high pressure system that'll, that's sort of dominating the, the, the weather at the moment. Sort of the highest sitting over the Tasman Sea extends a ridge across southern Victoria, and there's a bit of a, a lingering trough just poking in from, from New South Wales. So, with that sort of synoptic situation, we've got generally fine conditions, but as we move into tomorrow, the northeasterly winds do bring up the moisture a little bit, and there is a chance of some afternoon showers developing. Uh, on and south of the ranges through central and eastern parts of the state. Uh, And there may even be a a rumble of thunder developing in the afternoon, most likely over western south Gippsland, um, maybe into the central district as well. But for the most part, we're probably looking at um, a possible thunderstorm over western south Gippsland. Moving across into Wednesday, might be some residual showers about the east, but for the most part, it should be a generally fine day. Warm conditions are expected over Victoria, and um, we should see the winds start to swing around westerly and pick up ahead of an approaching trough, uh, approaching front. 
that front is expected to pass over Tasmania on Thursday and with that the tail end of that front will, is likely to bring showers to southern parts of the state uh, during the day on Thursday. Probably a little bit windier as well, so increased winds around the southern parts of the state, chance of a shower, but for northern plains on Thursday it should remain uh, dry and mostly sunny. Uh, yes, it might get a bit fresh in the westerly winds, but uh, I think the weather should be uh, pretty much south of the divide for, for Thursday. And just quickly looking ahead to sort of the latter part of the week and into the weekend, um, we see showers gradually contracting southwards for Friday as, as a new high pressure system brings stable conditions for Saturday uh, and warmer conditions on Saturday, but we are expecting another change to bring some further shower activity uh, through the latter part of the weekend into early next week. So um, all in all, uh, we're looking at uh, mostly fine conditions for the rest of today uh, and possibly some showers and thunderstorms developing on and south of the divide uh, during tomorrow, Jane. So it really does seem like it's completely different depending on which part of the state you're in this week. <laughs> exactly right, and it makes it pretty hard to explain what's going on when there's so much going on uh, in different parts of Victoria. So... Um, yeah, best have a look at the Bureau website and get, get the best forecast we can provide and, uh, yeah, I'll probably take it from there. No, you've done a fantastic job, Mark. Is there any warnings or anything else that our We have no done? warnings. Wonderful. Would you believe there is no warnings on our webpage? So um, and I think it should stay that way. Even the thunderstorms tomorrow don't look like they're going to be severe. So um, we should be warning-free for the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. Brilliant news. All right, thanks so much, Mark. My pleasure. Mark Analak there with, from the Bureau of Meteorology. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Jane McNaughton with you this afternoon. It is 22 minutes to one o'clock. Despite a pretty dry summer for a lot of areas, deep soil moisture remains excellent in large parts of the cropping zone, thanks to big rains last spring. That's highlighted by Agriculture Victoria's network of a dozen deep soil moisture probes, eight of which show 100% soil moisture. Dale Boyd, seasonal risk agronomist and manager of the network, says the rain from last spring has been preserved at depth. Yeah, probably to generalise soil moisture, across the state, anything north of the divide is certainly at conditions that are wetter than this time last year and really just a consequence of that wet spring and rainfall exceeding plant requirements. Um, started off in September, well and truly exceeded requirements in October and continued into November. And some of your sites through the Mallee, the likes of Werribee, Oyen, Speed, they're showing essentially a 100% full profile. Yeah, that's, that's right. All those Mallee sites don't have the highest water holding capacity compared to sites in the Wimmera and, and North Central. They've got that lighter soil types. Uh, probably had crops that were finishing as well. So when those rains just continue to come through October and November, you know, they'd reach maturity. So further rain that fell, it just built upon those moisture levels. And so I'd say they're pretty saturated right at depth and comments from those farmers, farmer, host farmer up there, you know, it's still pretty tricky to do summer spraying on some of those hills, uh, water coming out, some of those soaks. And pretty extraordinary that those sites that are showing 100% soil moisture are typically the driest parts of the state. Yeah, that's right. And probably just to re-emphasise the AgVic Moisture Probe Network 
it is de- measuring deep soil moisture, so that's from 30 centimetres down to a metre. Um, there is soil testing starting to occur now. I think most people would generally agree that you know that the soil is pretty hard and crusty, and you know the clay loams are sort of set like concrete. It's probably is dry down to 10, 15 centimetres, but we haven't got the probes. They're all down deeper than that uh, at this stage. The moisture's uh, sitting pretty safely there. Uh, over the next month without rain, we will s- continue to see the moisture um, being lost from that top horizon, so it might be down to, to 20 centimetres, maybe a bit further. So that's just something to take into account, um, just where the position of the probe sensors are as we move into this autumn period and of course you know we've had a decile one two you know struggling to reach average in north central victoria for summer so it has been quite dry so it's probably been you know it's always an eye-opener to say to show what the the probe data can can display and uh, three months of limited rain deep moisture is still in place i wanted to ask that too because you look at horsham for example virtually no rain in december little rain in January, little rain in February but that moisture as you say, at depth it's, uh, if you control your summer weeds it's, it's fairly well insulated down there Yes, it is controlling summer weeds, I'm glad you picked that up uh, we're starting to see those weeds becoming more evident uh, but they've certainly, once they can tap into that deeper moisture they can grow quite actively and they can do a lot of damage. We've seen that in the past. So, yeah, can't emphasise enough the importance of summer weed control. And just as well on summer weeds, Dale, if you've got, let's say, a paddock there where it hasn't grown a single thing since harvest, and then next to it you've got a paddock where deep-rooted summer weeds have grown rampant for the past three months, what sort of contrast can there be in that deep moisture? To generalise, I think most of the sites with summer weed control, they're probably going to be sitting at 75% up to 100%. With summer weeds, you've got to be well below 50% and uh, could be even drier. So well worth examining that impact as well. And, yeah, it's unfortunate. It's a bit shattering to see uh, those summer weeds get going when they do because that's sort of an opportunity lost. Uh, the outlook is, you know, what it is. There's a, there's a bit of talk. Um, but we do know that that moisture in the bank is so valuable uh, come that spring finish and you know if we just lack rain for a month that shortfall can be picked up from that deep moisture. And Dale you mentioned sowing coming up obviously people will start in the northern area start sowing pretty soon. Uh, what are you sort of hearing about their confidence I suppose one side excellent soil moisture the flip side is that outlook although unreliable at this time of year but the outlook is somewhat negative. Uh, what do people make of those two sort of opposing factors? Well, just conversations here at the uh, Wimmera Field Days is that you know the sowing program will just continue on as normal, looking to complete it at a, a set date and just working backwards to when they need to start. So if they're sowing dry initially, that top horizon is dry, that'll start. Just hope there is that breaking rain totally out of our hands. We'll just work in with what we've got at this stage. That was Dale Boyd, seasonal risk agronomist with Agriculture Victoria, speaking with Angus Fairley. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. 
happening overseas now where every five or so years, politicians in the United State, States pass a massive piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. It's $40 billion worth of programs covering everything from conservation, rural development, energy, resource, research, insurance and subsidies. Agriculture Secretary... Secretary Tom Vilsack says he wants a farm bill for the many and the most. Clint Jasper asked University of Illinois agriculture policy expert Jonathan Coppice how he's interpreting that statement. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, interpret over interpret uh, the secretary's words, but I think a couple of things that jump out in that phrasing. We have an aging farm population. We've seen a lot of consolidation, both in the farm ownership and the farm sector all the way up through different parts of the supply chain. And so I think he has talked a lot about um, getting new farmers, beginning farmers, new entrepreneurs in the system, whether that be you know somebody who's gonna start a community supported agriculture farming operation that provides vegetables to the local, you know, as local farmers market opportunities, uh, to getting a new generation of corn and soybean and wheat farmers and in and, and, and operating and access to land. They've also been quite innovative in trying to uh, to kind of help jumpstart, you know, um, entrepreneurship and things like the fertilizer industry and things like meat processing and the livestock side of things. So I think he's kind of covering a lot of that. Our rural communities have been really hollowed out for many years. And so thinking of ways for new business entrepreneurs in rural America and helping uh, connect them with agriculture and the agriculture opportunities. In a recent press conference, Secretary Vizak said last year in the U.S., Farm incomes were at record highs on the books, but nearly 90% of farmers were either not making money or not making the majority of the money they have from farming. So is this another area that either he wants to address or that the farm bill should prioritise? Does it say there's something structurally going wrong in US farming? I think probably a lot of the concern we've seen is is in that mid-range and in those kind of family-sized farms or, or maybe one or two, you know, a couple brothers or or uh, the dad and an uncle kind of thing that farm together that, that have really, you know, had tough goings. And unfortunately, I think a lot of our policies over the years have kind of drifted to be more beneficial to the larger operations and have also kind of contributed to some of that, those challenges. And then there's been a lot of interest around the climate change set of issues, whether it's resiliency at the farm level, whether it's trying to help with regenerative agriculture or whether it's trying to do, uh, you know, jumpstart greenhouse gas sequestration and storage type markets. And again, you need the innovators. And a lot of times the innovators are are in that middle range who are, you know, uh, have to get creative on how they how they operate their farms. Just on climate change, um, the whole world is coming out of uh, rare third or fourth La Nina, depending on who you ask, in the US that produced some really dry conditions. So will that factor into the size of um, either those subsidies or some of the crop insurance programs, given that kind of the conditions that they're set up for have just played out? Well, I think with our crop insurance program, which is probably our most important part of our farm uh, safety net and support system, I think there's a lot of concern with how drought's playing out over time, how climate change is going to impact that going forward. You know, a lot of that program operates, you know, based on losses and, and subsidy or, uh, premiums and, and those sorts of things. So Congress typically makes some adjustments or tries to expand coverage, but doesn't make major changes in it. 
Just finally, Jonathan, what kind of timeline is the farm bill on at the moment in terms of, you know, is there, does it have to be completed by a certain date or will these negotiations well, roll on? Well, that's a great, <laughs> <laughs> that's like, a, that's kind of a great, uh, you know, gambling question at the moment, <laughs> how long it take to do it. Technically, they're supposed to get many of these things reauthorized by the end of September of this year or the end of this calendar year, kind of depending on the program. At the rate we're going with some of the challenges we have in front of us uh, politically and, and in Congress, you know, it's hard to imagine them getting it done by any specific deadline. So we're probably looking at at least an extension of, for some period of time and them having, you know, Congress having to get get things worked out. So, you know, ideally we'd see it done by September, but I, I don't know that that's uh, that's reasonable to expect uh, in the you wouldn't bet on environment it. or calendar. <laughs> Jonathan Coppice, an associate professor with the University of Illinois, and he was speaking there with Clint Jasper. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Citrus production in southern Africa staying overseas is set to increase significantly in the coming years. Fruit exported from South Africa, Zimbabwe and Swaziland is in direct competition with citrus growing here in Australia. The Industry Affairs Manager for Citrus Growers Association of Southern Africa, Paul Hardman, attended Citrus Australia's Market Outlook Forum in Mildura last week to talk about challenges and opportunities they are facing. So the southern African citrus industry has been on a, a path of growth for some, quite some time now, roughly about 7% on average per year growing, and that growth is actually now starting to accelerate. So if we look at what's been planted in the last five years, um, we're we now reaching 100,000 hectares of citrus under production. Um, and as those young orchards come into production, our exports are likely to, to increase from around 165 million to, to over... 200 million by 2026. What are the main types of citrus that are being planted in increasing numbers? So it's very clear that the mandarin types, the, the easy peeling varieties, are the uh, coming into production as well as lemons. Should Australian citrus growers be concerned about this because the fruit from southern Africa is also harvested at the same times as Australian citrus. So obviously we do compete in roughly the same marketing windows and uh, there is concern generally I think in the southern hemisphere of oversupply so that's why these opportunities to share information with counterparts in Australia are quite useful so that we can understand where where we're all at and uh, obviously make decisions that hopefully um, see supply meeting, meeting demand. Um, it also creates uh, perhaps a need for, for working together to drive overall citrus uh, demand. So there are opportunities, and we saw some in the presentations today, about um, increasing uh, the messaging around the, the, the nutritional value of citrus. And that, uh, that is a good and positive message, and we're hoping to, that more consumers are aware of that so that uh, ultimately demand for citrus uh, increases. Australian citrus growers have had a couple of very challenging years the costs of inputs like fertiliser have increased and shipping's been very chaotic. Are they similar issues that southern African growers are grappling with as well? We, we faced practically the, exactly the same issues. So the last two years have been extremely challenging for our producers. Um, and in fact, yeah, one in, one in five um, producers in the next 
euro to are only, uh, only expected to be profitable. So, so the, they are under significant uh, economic pressure, and so that, that also throws into light the need to, to adjust plantings and to be careful about planting so that we, we don't oversupply the market. What's Southern Africa's experience been like when it comes to establishing new markets and working through protocols? Again, we we've actually have a very similar story to what we see Australia having to deal with. Very long delays in, in accessing markets, so it takes a long time. You know, We're talking decades before protocols are actually ad- updated or uh, adopted, and obviously that's quite frustrating. Um, and so you know, we, we obviously have to keep, keep working on it, um, but it's, it is a major frustration. You've got a pretty big challenge trying to comply with black spot requirements. How big an issue is that and what kind of things need to be done? In, in the Southern African context, because Europe is our main market, we, we have seen them introduce specific requirements for black spot control. And uh, those essentially require um, all fruit to be black spot, black spot free. Um, so what that means at a farm level is that we have to apply fungicide sprays um, and then also do a lot of inspection of the fruit before we export to, to the European Union. Um, that, that process and that whole system that is, is behind that is very expensive. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously um, not something that's applied to other markets, um, but, but it's a very expensive for our, our Southern African uh, industry to comply with uh, European requirements to the value. It's, a, it's about a, a billion South African rand, so it's about 90 million US dollars. Industry Affairs Manager with Citrix Growers Association of Southern Africa, Paul Hardman speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. ABC Radio, it's yours. Yours for sharing your news. Yours for airing your local perspective. Yours in good times and bad. ABC Radio. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Time to head to the markets. First, we'll head to Wagga for the cattle market with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. 3,100 cattle sold to the usual buying group. Quality remains mostly secondary with a few trade cattle throughout the sale. The market continued to struggle with numbers outpacing demand. There were some big price variations along the way. Lightweight steers sold 40 to 50 cents cheaper, 308 to 450, averaging around $930. Lightweight feeder steers were back 15, 305 to 382. Medium weight feeder steers lost 12 cents, 310 to 387. Trade steers were back 15, $3 to $3.50. Feeder heifers lightweight were also down 15 cents, 310 to $3.54. Medium weight feeder heifers sold to erratic competition with prices up to 30 cents cheaper, 275 to 356. Trade heifers $3 to $3.30. Heavy grown steers and bullocks were back 18 cents, 290 to $3.44. Heavy cows were well supplied and prices softened 15 cents. Heavy cows 260 to 292. 
Leanne Dacksimile. Thank you for that, Leanne. Now, there are no Victoria markets today because of the public holiday, but Scott from Hamilton has requested some of the New South Wales lamb markets, so we will bring that to you from New South Wales. So we'll get an update now on the volat- considering the volatility in the market. Up first, we'll head to Dubbo for the sheep market with David Monk. Numbers are backed by 1,400 free yarding of 11,800 lambs. There was only a fair quality yarding with a pretty good selection of trade weight lambs along with reasonable numbers of heavyweights. Not all the usual buyers were operating in a cheaper market. Trade lambs were 15 to $20 cheaper, with the trade weight old lambs weighing between 20 and 24 kilograms, selling from 90 to 177, to average between 680 and 715 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were 25 to 30 cheaper and more in places, with the lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 157 to 218, to average around 700 cents a kilogram. The few pens of merino lambs were considerably cheaper, with trade weights selling from 100 to 124. Lambs to the restockers were also cheaper, with crossbred selling from 40 to 65, while Aussie white ewe lambs to the restockers sold for $69. Hoggets were $5 cheaper, selling to 120. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Thank you, David Monk, there with that speedy report from Dubbo. Now we'll head to Coral for the lambs market with Caroline Ronald. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Agents penned 2,000 less than last week's sale for a total of 13,000 sheep and lambs. The quality continues to be good with all weights and grades on offer. Most buyers were present operating in a cheaper market across all categories. Medium and heavy trade lambs slipped nine to twelve dollars, one hundred and thirty-seven to one hundred and eighty-four. Heavy lambs, twenty-five and twenty-six kilos, eased nine dollars, one hundred and seventy-eight to one hundred and ninety-two. Extra heavy export types fell thirteen to twenty-seven dollars, selling from one hundred and eighty-nine to two hundred and ten. Feeder lambs were thirteen to twenty-five dollars cheaper, eighty-eight to one hundred and twenty-five, and restockers participated on the very light lambs from ten to forty-seven dollars. Mutton was well supplied, prices declining from six to twenty dollars. Heavy crossbred used sixty-eight to one hundred and fifteen. Heavy merino used seventy-six to one hundred and twenty. Medium sheep sold from forty-eight to seventy-five, and light sheep from twenty-eight to thirty-five dollars. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Thank you for that report from Corowa. Caroline, really appreciate that. Considering the volatility in the market, I hope that was of interest to some people. Gaming probably started taking over my life during the pandemic. Excessive gaming changes the teenage brain. Australian Story meets Aussie families desperate for help. I've seen kids who are very depressed, very anxious. And the man helping them take back control. Wayne is so personally invested with these kids and wants to make a real difference. I'm kind of excited about how things are going to go. Australian Story. Game changer. The course has changed a lot of things in my life. Streaming now on ABC iview. And that's about all the time we've got today on the Country Hour. I've really appreciated your time. Warwick Long will join you today. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's just uh, filling in for the drive shift for the remainder of the week. And if you'd like to anything more from ABC Rural, you can always head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural. There was a lot of interest last week in a story we ran on the right to repair and you can find out more now if you head online for that one. Thank you for joining me today on The Country Hour. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Monday if you get the public holiday. Otherwise, stay tuned for work this afternoon.